Good morning and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, A Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Christy and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Monday, June 24th. Today we are reading from the big book. We are on page 32, starting with a man of 30. Today's readers are Penny E, Fran, Judy B, and Rebecca. The reference number for Friday is 4666. And again, that's 4666. The OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Lois to read the 12 steps, please. Good morning, everyone. This is Lois, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Massachusetts. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Lois. I will now ask Melanie to read the 12 traditions, please. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie. A recovered compulsive overeater calling in teeny tiny hours from Oregon. The 12 traditions. Number one, our commonwealth should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. 
two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is a spiritual foundation for all these traditions. Every mind is to place principles before personalities. Yes. Thank you, Melanie. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today we resume our study of the big book. We are on page 32, starting with the paragraph, A Man of 30. I will ask Penny E. to begin reading, please. Thank you so much. Good morning, good morning, everybody. Penny E., a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he would get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man, he remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Then he fell victim to a belief, which practically every alcoholic has, 
that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came his carpet slippers and a bottle. In two months, he was in a hospital, puzzled and humiliated. He tried to regulate his drinking for a while, making several trips to the hospital meantime. Then gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. Wow. Major, major paragraph. Major paragraph for us to identify in. And if there's anybody on the line saying, I can't identify in with that, 25 years, dead, no, no, no. Well, let's, let's look at it. It's major. First of all, this is more about alcoholism. And most of this chapter is devoted to step one, you know, the, um, the obsession of the mind. This chapter is really about people, the stories that we're going to read, who have the alcohol down, you know, and then the obsession of the mind, the crux of the problem. So we as compulsive readers, for those of us who have been in 11 million years, 30 years, 25 years, abstinent, pick up, abstinent, pick up, can't get it, can't get it, can't get it. Well, uh, I think what I'm finding out now is that it's not that we can't get it. We just don't know that the problem, the crux of the problem, is the obsession of the mind. We're working that... Uh, abstinent programs, supported dieting, you know, food plans, food plans, food plans, when the crux of the problem is the mental obsession. So here, here it says this. He knew he was an alcoholic. Um, he saw that he would get nowhere if he drank at all. I mean, he knew. Once he started, he had no control whatever. That's, that's a uh, description of a real alcoholic. He made up his mind. I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink. And he was exceptional for 25 years. 25 years. He was able to hold his breath underwater, right? That's what we, our dear Leia says, and I love it. Holding his breath for 25 years under, underwater. So for those of us in a way, we can identify. I can get a week, I can get a month, I can get, you know, to the time... Uh, my uh, sister's 50th birthday. I can get a time till my, you know, 30th high school uh, reunion. And then the obsession of the mind comes in. It says here, uh, he had a successful business career. Then he fell victim. This is it. This is the crux of the problem. This is where we have to identify in. That he fell victim to the belief, which practically every alcoholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Now, he's, he's abstinent. He's sober. But the obsession of the mind says, I can do this. You know, I'll get back on track tomorrow. I've been doing this for so long. I know, you know, I can't eat. But I'm just going to have one tonight. I like to say if I wear stripes up and down, you know, they're not going to know. They won't know I'm fat, so, you know, I can eat some more. Um, this is the crux of the problem. Very, very important for us to identify in. In two months, he was in the hospital. He didn't know what hit him. Then gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether. He found he could not. Can, I, can we identify in with that? 30 years, how many people do we hear around these rooms? I've been 25 years and I can't get it. But here's the sad part. 
Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. Through the grace of God, you know, I, I got recovered before that. So um, anyway, I love you all. Thanks for letting me share, and have a God-filled day. I'll pass. Thank you, Penny. Would anyone else Lauren? like to share on this paragraph? Yes, Lauren. Lauren. Okay, I've heard a couple of people. Lauren, you can, uh, Lauren, and then I'm sorry, who else? Barbara. Um, I, I still didn't catch that. Barbara. Eileen. Okay, there's Barbara and Eileen. Lauren, why don't you go ahead? Okay. This is my first share on the, the uh, recorded part. I'm Lauren S. from Pennsylvania, and uh, I'm really grateful to be here today on this meeting. This story, you know, I've heard it a few times, um, but this really kicked in hearing it again, I guess with a fresh perspective, because I'm ready to embark on my ninth step amends, and I'm really excited, weirdly, to go through with it. I really just want to clear up the gook again. <laughs> you know, it's going to be my first time. but I've been really, every second of the day has just been a lesson in humility. And this story reminds me that, um, about how strong our disease is progressing when we're really just living on self-will, regardless of eating or not, regardless uh, if we even ever ingest and trigger that, that uh, allergy. So it just reminded me that you know, I was just looking back, and um, you know, it's been about eight months that I've been abstinent, and um, I've been in program for about nine months. So clearly, for me, that's quite a miracle. I couldn't go a day of, of, of any kind of abstinence. Um, but really looking back, I, I never really noticed the eight months. You know, I never really noticed that I went that long. And uh, I never really noticed. The, I've lost a lot of weight. I have. Um, I'm at a, a normal BMI. I'm no longer obese. But I haven't really noticed that. I, I guess I don't focus on it in meetings and um, and talking to people. I really don't. It just It's a miracle. It really is. But I really don't focus on that because, for me, that's a fleeting kind of vain thing um, to only focus on, I should say. And so every day I'm so grateful, and I really thank God for every single thing, for being a compulsive overeater. I'm grateful for that. And I know, though, when I was just doing all of this for self-satisfaction, I wasn't in OA for that reason. I really kind of jumped into OA because I was so hopeless. But every other diet I tried, and any, anything really in life, um, to get friends, not just food. Clearly, food is never the only thing that... I have to focus on. It wasn't just dieting. It was getting popularity. It was making somebody laugh. It was all for self-satisfaction. And so every single day that I was um, successful in a diet or successful in popularity, it was all, oh, my gosh, Lauren, the self, you're awesome. Like, look how much you can do on your own will. You are a shining star. So every day the amnesia of what I truly was really kind of slipped from my mind. And I really, my self-will actually grew stronger because my confidence and, yeah, you know, I was on this diet for a week. Yeah, it's been a month. Yeah, it's been three months. My self-will is, like, incredible. Like, my ego was building and building with each passing day, uh, 
whether it was popularity or food, um, abstinence or whatnot. And I can only imagine this man went through this for 25 years. I mean, I'm I'm 22, so I've clearly not had that. I uh, would never have been able to have that experience. Um, for 25 years, I couldn't imagine what his ego must have been telling him. Yeah, like 25 years without a drink? Like, my self-will is just incredible, right? That's, I ima- that's what I imagine. And so his disease was just enormous when he finally picked up. It was just enormously powerful because he was building it up over all these years. He was building up his, his life run on self instead of a God-centered life. So that's, I could only imagine that it's almost like the longer I was abstinent and not humble to God, the next time I picked up was even worse, and I put the weight on faster, and I became agoraphobic quicker, and all of these things. Um, So I I really like this story. It's just another kind of kick in the pants that I can identify in, you know, no, I'm not a man and all that, but I can really identify that my disease is always there. Um, but it's really about like, what kind of, do I want to live on self or God? Uh, so thank you. I'll, I'll pass. Thank you, Lauren. Barbara, go ahead. Thank you. This is Barbara. I'm a compulsive overeater and I just am drawn so much to relating to this story. And those of you who know me have heard me tell this many times, but I'm telling it again because it strengthens me and maybe it'll be useful to someone, but there am I. It takes me back over 30 years ago after my first year of abstinence and recovery in OA. I was on vacation with four children. My husband was still at home working, and I decided to take myself out to lunch. After all, I was learning in recovery, self-care. I went out to lunch, had an abstinent lunch, and I sat at the table in the restaurant looking at a very slim woman eating a dessert. And I put it through this process, even though I had experienced the um, encounter with the phenomenon of craving and seen that that was why I never could ever lose weight and stay on any kind of program. There was no therapist, no nothing, hypnosis, fasting, nothing could do it. But the principle of the phenomenon of craving, if I didn't start, I wouldn't ever have to try to stop again I knew that but I sat there and watched this very slim woman eat a dessert and in my mind I said I've had one full year of not just abstinence but I had gone through a fourth step very deep fourth step I'm in I must be different now as this as the book says this long period a year seemed long at the time Sobriety and self-discipline qualified me to drink, and in my case, eat, like that slim woman at the table nearby me. So I thought it through, and I said, I must be different. We just read recently, you know, the delusion has to be smashed. Delusion, illusion, there it was. I didn't know that I never was going to grow new legs, that once my legs were gone, as we read. And so I did, order what she ordered. And it started me on a binge that took me across the street and then up the island and to another place, uncontrollable, uncontrollable, and misery, despair. And I had a breakdown from all of that ingestion of sugar and horrible. And I had to be carted off an ambulance 
in an ambulance off to the hospital and begin yet another period of, as it says, you know, demoralization, humiliation, until I came crawling back. I mean, I had lost 100 pounds. I thought, oh, I can, I can do this. I must be different. That is the delusion that has to be smashed, and why I'm very glad to look at this again so that I never, ever, God willing, go back to thinking that it's going to be any different because it isn't. Because if I dared to think it was different, that would be the beginning of the end for me. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Barbara. Eileen, go ahead. Thanks, Christy. This is Eileen, a food addict from Massachusetts. How cunning, baffling, and powerful is this disease? It's incredible. I can't conceive of someone who, who would have 25 years of sobriety, but this man really intellectualized his sobriety. He, it says here that he was ambitious to succeed in businesses, thought that he would get nowhere if he drank at all. He understood that. And once he started, he had no control, whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. So he thought he had thought it all the way through to the end. I'm, I can't touch another drop. And it says, it doesn't say that he went to meetings or whatever. But that happened to me. I, uh, you know, it took me a long time to get abstinent, and I finally had it. I had five solid years of abstinence, and because I was feeling so despondent, so depressed, so uh, self-loathing, my situation I felt was I, I had no power to control it whatsoever. Everything that I had learned in the halls, of OA just went right out the door and I just went out and picked up. I did it. And then, I mean, I have never known, never experienced the obsession so bad as I have been. And um, it says here that, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him during like other men. Out came as quali- had uh, qualified to drink as other men. Out came as carpet slippers in a bottle. In two months, he was in a hospital, puzzled and humiliated. That happened to me too. Uh, shut my door in my bedroom. Leave me alone. I don't want to be bothered. I just wanted to sit there with a bag and a box. Well, where did it get me? It lent me, lent, uh, got me into a hospital. Led me into a hospital. And, uh, you know, for depression and uh, for my abstinence being broken. But thank you, God. Thank you, God. I'll never forget that time in my life. It was three and a half years ago. I will never forget it. And that's what keeps me, that's what prevents me forever picking up the food, you know, is, is how badly it was. The obsession, the obsession of the mind, how badly it was when I picked up. So um, thanks for listening, and I'll pass. Thank you, Eileen. Who else would like to share on this paragraph? This, this is, is Paula. May I share? Boston? Uh, Paula, I heard someone from Boston. Katie G. Katie. 
yeah. I think I heard two Katie's. So there's a Katie from Boston and then Katie from Virginia. So how about Paula? Paula, you go ahead. Thank you. This would be Paula um, from New Hampshire Recovered. That line, then he fell victim. Always. Always. Then he fell victim. And I will tell you clearly, I've never done 25 years. I've never done five years. But I've done my period of time. The result, what ending was always the same. Time may have been different. Place may have been different. But the ending always the same. Then he fell victim to a belief, which practically every, oh, I would be part of that, alcoholic has that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline, there it is, had qualified him to drink as other men. That illusion, the delusion, always there. This, I remember I wanted to go on a cruise, and we had a long time planned on this cruise. And, oh, you bought clothes for the cruise. You exercised for the cruise. You ate like an angel for the cruise. Not that I know how an angel would eat, but that how I thought it would be. And this part, the part that amazed me, I had the nicest clothes, strutted up that thing. There I went on the cruise. Can I tell you how I came back? All that preparation for that cruise, months and months and months. The cruise wasn't a long cruise. I'm talking seven days. In seven days, how those clothes looked. Oh, honey, the buttons stopped. The stretch bands came out. And even then. But it was more than that. When I walked down there, when I walked off that ship, that was supposed to be for enjoyment and pleasure. It was none of that. This disease is very patient. Beware. And it's very permanent. It's like that ink. You tell your kids, whatever you do, don't use that ink. And that's the pen they get. And progressive, oh, honey, all those months, it was just waiting. It was waiting. For this man, all those years, it was waiting. It will always be there, just waiting. And the pot, it will always get worse, never better. Be clear here. Be clear. Once you are, then you move on. And until you are, you stay where you are. Thank you for allowing me to share that I do pass. Thank you, Paula. And then Katie from Boston, go ahead. Good morning, everyone. My name is Katie. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Grateful to be here this morning. Um, so when I got to this part of the reading with my sponsor, it was actually really being smashed home to me. Katie, are you insane with food? Like, do you see, like this man, you know, what she said to me is this guy has no spiritual solution, right? Like, he makes a decision. Okay, I have a problem with alcohol. Like, I could have told you at age six I had a problem with food. Like, I kind of knew that, you know, Jennifer was not thinking I was too cool when I was telling her to steal Twix bars. Like, she wasn't obsessed with food the way I was. And so he makes a decision, okay, I can't do this alcohol, so I'm, I'm not going to do it. And um, 
I did that with everything. I did that with food. And then I did that also in abstinence. Okay, so I see that I am going to work every day and micromanaging people and nobody is liking, nobody's responding well. So I'm getting in bigger and bigger trouble, right? So I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to have no spiritual solution. I am abstinent. I'm standing at the front of the room and saying I'm abstinent and grateful. Oh, I understand how cunning, baffling, and powerful this disease is. I understand when I put that food into my body, I have this allergy. But look at me now. Look at I'm doing my tools and my quiet time. And although all those things are great, I had no spiritual solution. I had no um, relationship with God that I was cultivating. Um, and so, you know, very easily I could fall victim to a belief a lie that, you know, my long period of abstinence or, you know, long periods of good behavior at work have qualified me to, to you know, um, go out and eat the way I want to eat or go out and, um, you know, oh, well, I, you know, I haven't told this person what to do in a, in a little while. I'm just going to, I'm going to smack down and, and, you know, they, they like me right now. So I'm, I'm just going to do this once and seeing, you know, and to see what happens. And, you know, with the food, it turned immediately um, into some crazy behavior, whether it be for me, um, compulsive overeating, undereating, exercise, you know, and the minute I put that, that food in my body, you know, it was, or the exercise, it was my, it was my drug of no choice, you know, and, and yeah, I absolutely, um, I definitely went to, went to pieces quickly many, many, many times. And I found, you know, in my abstinence, the insane decisions that I have made with no spiritual solution. Like, yeah, I should go over here now. Yeah, I should go to this job again, even though I've been fired four times. That's really great. And so what my sponsor explained to me is like having this, I am powerless over food and I place myself beyond human aid. And I have to have, can I relate to this guy not having a spiritual solution? Can I relate to that in my own life? And what kind of destruction that's going to lead to? Because if I can, then I can see that for me, I had no other choice but to continue on with the steps so that I could have a spiritual awakening, so that I could start helping others, um, which is my primary purpose to carry the message and to live a life that's away from these decisions that I make about, yep, I can't do it. I really can't do it, but I'm going to muster up enough space. I mean, how many bootstraps have I pulled up? And it never worked. And you know what, guys? Today, I still continue to have to remember, to, to remember this. Just because I know on the meeting this morning that I'm powerless over alcohol and my life is unmanageable, and thank God I don't want to eat, I have to stay vested into this process into, of recovery, um, or else I can easily fall victim to many false beliefs. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Katie. And then Katie from Virginia, go ahead. Good morning. This is Katie, a recovered compulsive overeater from Virginia. And, you know, this is just a very powerful uh, paragraph for me in particular because I've been absent for 25 years. And I uh, sometimes feel like when I tell people that, they look at me like, well, can you still weigh and measure your food? And you still go to meetings and you still call your sponsor every day and you still read from the literature and write every day and you still call people and talk about the issue of the day, what's wrong with you? Why, aren't, why aren't you cured? 
why aren't you perfect? You don't you don't need me. You don't you don't need to talk to me because because you you must be perfect by now. And of course, this is exactly what would happen to me if I were to say, Oh yeah, oh yeah, I am perfect. You know, no, I don't need to tell you what's going on. I don't need to tell you how, you know, I treated my daughter yesterday and I need to make amends because, you know, I've done the steps for 25 years and, you know, I'm okay. And this is exactly what would happen to me. It would happen to me and would happen to anyone if you stay absent for five months, five years, or five decades. This is a progressive disease, but it doesn't matter how long you've been abstinent. We have a uh, recovery that is based on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And until I accepted that, I was this person who after five years of being in the room and not, you know, really eating sugar, just have this half-baked abstinence some of the time, but I wasn't binging on sugar, I got the idea that that five years, you know, I wouldn't eat like I did before. Come on, I know, I know too much. You know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't do that. And instead, it was like jumping off a cliff when I started eating that sugar. And that's the strong memory that I have. And it was over 25 years ago. And that's what I have to remember because this is what will happen to me if I forget. I'm 52 now. I was 27 years old when I realized, well, I didn't do anything. It was God gave me the uh, willingness to do what I needed to do for that day. And those days, as someone else shared earlier, you know, just started piling up on each other. And yes, it's been 25 years. But as much as I've changed, as much as I don't struggle with, you know, being tempted by food and and that sort of thing, the mental obsession is gone. Inside, were I to pick up food and to think that I could take back control of my life, I would be Jim with that all passed. Thank you, Katie. We're going to move on to the next paragraph, which is the first one on page 33. Fran, would you please read that for us? Good morning, this is Fran Compulsive of the Overeater. This case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. But here is a man who at 55 years found he was just where he had left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time as bad as ever. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. And um, the disease is, is never cured. It's just a daily reprieve. And and that depends on working the program, working the step, being abstinent, and working the steps. And I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Fran. Who would like to share on this paragraph? This is Anne Marie. Anne Marie, go ahead. Hi, Anne Marie, recovered compulsive eater. Um, thanks for uh, chairing the meeting, Christy. Um, 
this paragraph, I mean, this sentence in, in the paragraph before with, with, you know, the man of 30 who thought he, well, he did do it on his own. And, you know, like I've heard other people say, you know, they did it on their own. I did it on my own, you know, white knuckling it and proud of myself, all me, um, so happy to get all the attention and the pats on the back of what a good job I have done. There was no, never any reliance on God to me because I, I didn't even think of that. I thought I could do it on my own. Um, but this sentence here, most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. Well, that brings me, that this reminds me of page 62, where it says, um, uh, where is it? Um, sometimes... Okay, yeah. Uh, so our troubles we think are basically of our own making, yes. Uh, they arise out of ourselves. The alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, um, though he usually doesn't think so. And that was my case, you know. Uh, self-will run riot. I was going to do this diet. I was going to lose this weight, and I was going to get all those pats on the back. And, um, you know, but I didn't think, you know, that I was, um, I thought I was humble, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, that, you know, I was just, you know, just doing such a good job. Um, and I thought that if I could do this long enough, you know, eventually, like I've heard other people say, eventually, you know, I'd be able to have a piece of cake or, or have a little something to eat just to treat myself. And there the ball, you know, started rolling again and back into the food over and over again. But for me, it was all about self-will, run riot. I was, you know, no no reliance on God at all. And um, that's where I've learned, that's what I've learned um, in this process, is my reliance on God has to be number one before anything else. Um, so I'll pass with that. Thanks. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Who else would like to share on this paragraph? This is Leah. Kim, Leah, and then Janice. Go ahead, Kim. Good morning, Christy. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Most of us have believed that we remain sober for a long stretch. We could therefore drink normally. You know, once again, this is trying to teach us what is our problem. What is our problem? Because if we really think that feeling late is our problem, then we are going to be treating the wrong thing. If food was really our problem, then we could simply put down the food and go on with life. If weight was purely our problem, we would lose the weight and be able to eat temperately, which is what this is saying. I know my goal was always to get five pounds underweight. That way I had that cushion, that cushion to indulge. And why why do we feel this way? A lot of it has to do with, because this is what normal eaters tell us. This is what the medical community tells us. I've had three people in the last six to eight months that have called me. One went to a rehab in California, one went to an inpatient rehab in New Jersey, and one went to an outpatient rehab in New Jersey. All three of them helped to get them, quote-unquote, sober, and then after that, they had dessert night twice a week. Now that you're okay, let's teach you how to have dessert and just be able to enjoy it. Let's teach you how to eat temperately. And we have to understand once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, and we have to know what that means. So we have to have no lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. 
Because when I get on this line and I say that I am recovered, that does not mean I don't have the allergy of the body. I will never be cured of that. I will always have that allergy. So what that means when I say I am recovered is I have walked through these steps. I have reestablished a connection with a higher power. And because of that, my higher power has removed the obsession to eat. So I no longer want the food. And if I no longer want the food, I'm not going to pick up the food, which means I'm not going to trigger the allergy, which will always be there. And that is essential. That's what this chapter is trying to show us. It's the obsession of the mind which needs to be removed because that is what's going to allow us to not pick up the food and the allergy will no longer be triggered. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Leia, go ahead. Thank you so much. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leia. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. This case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could therefore drink normally. Um, and, uh, you know, I just want to say that although it's hard to come here, you know, it's it's hard to walk into a Overeaters Anonymous room or crawl in, you know, with tombstones in your eyes, but as hard as it is to crawl into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous and to muster up enough ego deflation uh, to to come, uh, let me tell you the truth. It's harder to stay. It's harder to stay for this reason. Uh, most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could therefore drink normally um, because most people come wanting not to stay, not to stay around the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous and do what uh, a recovered person has to do on a daily basis. Most people come not wanting to do that, but to, to leave with the knowledge that would allow them to eat safely. And the disease won't allow that. I call that the Research and Development Committee um, because we don't really want to be one. Therefore, we don't really want to do those things that are necessary to do in order to stay around. Uh, my abstinence date is January 19, 1987. Uh, I should have numbers and numbers and numbers of peers who have been in the rooms the amount of time I've been here. But the case is that's not true. The case is that's not true because of this, uh, this, this, uh, this lie that will rear its head. You know, in this man's case, it was the lie that, uh, you know, that every alcoholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. And people in Overeaters Anonymous, they fall to that same lie. They, they fall victim to that same lie. Uh, the paragraph goes on to say, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in short time as bad as ever. Uh, this book is teaching me about the twofold nature of my illness. It says, commencing to drink, beginning to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time as bad as ever. Why is that? Well, I have an allergy of the body, and that will never go away. That will never go away. I mean, once a cucumber becomes a pickle, there's no becoming a cucumber again. You cannot reverse the brining process. 
It says, if we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we Leah, we lost you. Leah, can you press star one to unmute? I don't know if that's the problem. Because she's off the line. Yeah, okay. Janice, why don't you go ahead? Thank you, Christy. Good morning. Good morning. This is Janice. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. So what about the real alcoholic? That's what we're talking about here. What about the real alcoholic? You know, back on uh, on page um, 21, we were taught we were taught about the real alcoholic. At some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. Doesn't say that you know long periods of sobriety and that will go away. It doesn't say that there's a cure for that. It says once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And it says that we have seen this truth demonstrated again and again. You know, I had seen that truth demonstrated for me and in me again and again. No matter how many times I might have mustered up the will, dug deep for the courage to try to make one more run at this thing and might have had a little bit of abstinence, some brief respite. Once I picked up, the game was up. The game was up once I picked up again. And that's what we're saying here. That's what we're trying to teach from our own experience just like they taught it from their own experience. They put it down in this book for me to read, to relate to. And let me tell you, I could relate. I could relate. In a short time, I was as bad as ever. In a very short time, I was as bad as ever. But it didn't take long. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, began to seem oh so true to me. True to me and my own personal experience. Now, here is the solution. Here is the answer. Here is the belief that had to come to me that I was an alcoholic, that I would always be an alcoholic. A compulsive overeater of my type does not recover overnight, nor do twisted thinking disappear in an instant. But there was a solution. As long as I kept at it and sticked close, and did these steps as if my life depended on it. And I do that today just like I did it from the very first day that I found this solution. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Janice. Leah, you want to go ahead? Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, continue on. It says, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in short time as bad as ever. Meaning, again, that the allergy of body is is always there. It always lies dormant. The flame may be doused, but uh, the pilot line 
pilot light always remains on. So is this guy's problem, is his real problem the fact that he has a physical allergy? Is that his real problem? No, that's not his real problem. The real problem that he has is not that he has a physical allergy to alcohol. Uh, the real problem is that he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol. That's the real issue here, that after 25 years of sobriety, he felt that now he could drink like other people. And based on that lie, he took a drink and he triggered the allergy. And, of course, we read that he was dead within four years. And the real problem centers in his mind telling him that he can drink rather than in his body that ensures that he can't. And that is the crux of the problem. And that is the whole issue here. You know, that despite periods, brief periods of abstinence, despite uh, dieting with group support, uh, let us tell you, the big book is saying here, that you have a greater problem. You have a problem in your mind that the monkey may be off your back, but the circus is still in town. You know, there, the, the problem exists between these ears that eventually makes a decision that, hey, I can handle this. But the big book is making it very, very clear here that our disease does not sleep, nor does it slumber. And that only a spiritual awakening, a psychic change, a personality change can expel this merciless obsession. And with that, I pass. Thanks so much. Thank you, Leah. Well, this is Christy, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And I, you know, I'm, I'm really drawn to so many parts of this paragraph, but especially this part here, this last sentence. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday, someday we will be immune to alcohol. You know, I'm the type of person who, you know, would practically break my arm patting myself on the back because I'd eaten, uh, you know, a reasonable breakfast, which wasn't an entire box of donuts. You know, I'd eaten the type of breakfast they show on the back of a cereal box, you know, that kind of, you know, nice little reasonable breakfast that, um you know, I'd start off my day with uh, on those days when I decided to eat breakfast. Um, you know, I'd eat that reasonable breakfast and, you know, patting myself on the back, um, you know, I'd, I'd say, well, I ate a good breakfast. I can have whatever I want for lunch. I mean, that's the kind of thinking I had. Um, that is the kind of thinking I had. You know, my, my mind, I mean, I've got a disease that wants me dead. I've got a disease that wants me dead, and that's what I am up against. It will settle for me being miserable, but I have a disease that wants me dead. You know, as someone else said, it's cunning, baffling, powerful, and it is patient. And, um, you know, I'm the one, I'm the one that had to say to myself, you know, am I done? Am I done compulsively overeating? Am I done? Uh, you know, I, you know it, it was never going to change for me. It was never going to change for me. I was, it was going to keep going, uh, you know, really honestly until I was, I was dead. I mean, I, I just, I was I was so done. I was so completely done. And, uh, you know, I am someone who today, you know, thank God I've got, 
you know, I've been on maintenance weight for 10 years. Um, you know, my cholesterol level is within a normal range. Both of my parents are type 2 diabetics, and I am not. You know, I am not. I weigh half the weight I weighed when I came into OA in 1994. Half the weight. I've lost a whole other person. And more important, I've lost a whole lot of insanity that I came in with that I didn't even know I had, that I didn't even know I had until I started digging in to the big book. Um, you know, again, I know who I am and what I'm up against. And uh, I have a whole lot more to lose today. I have a whole lot more to lose today because I have a full, rich life today that I have been granted by the grace of a power greater than me uh, through working the steps and living the principles of this program in all my affairs. I have a whole lot more to lose today. And I will do anything. I will do anything to, to keep my abstinence and recovery. Anything. Anything. Even at the risk of offending people because I don't eat something they baked for me and have offered me. No thank you. No thank you. That looks lovely, but no thank you. I mean, do you know how impossible that was to say? I mean, that was impossible for someone like me to say. And today it rolls off my tongue. But I have no doubt who and what I am. Who I am and what I'm up against. You know? And I've, you know, I've seen the results of the research and development team not only from my own experience, but I've seen that happen with other people. You know, I've seen it happen with people who say, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I want to be able to eat what I want. I want to be free to eat what I want. And, you know, I'm here to tell you that I did not find any freedom in being, you know, free to eat whatever it was I wanted. There was no freedom in that for me. Um, that was imprisoning to me. And, uh I'm very clear about that today. What I do today for my recovery pales in comparison to what I did in active addiction. And, you know, that's what I'm more grateful for than anything today. And with that, I'll pass. And we've got time for one more share on this particular paragraph before we close up for the day. Who else would Jerry? like to share? Sherry. Sherry or Jerry? Yes. Hey, everybody. I just want to check in and, and claim my seat that, uh, that I am a, a compulsive overeater, and um, I am um, recovering. I, I've seen and heard and had it pounded into my head that, um, you know, there's there's no way to get out of this except through this program of recovery and finding a higher power. And uh, that's all I have, okay? Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you to everyone who has shared. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Judy B., will you please read a vision for you, for us? Hi, good morning. This is Judy B., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Massachusetts. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. 
This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.